Um, so as I said, we're, in the, we're starting this series, this eight-week series in the, the book of Romans. So Paul wrote this um, letter to the Romans, and we're going to explore kind of the fundamentals of faith that Paul outlines in this. It's actually a fairly heavy letter. It has a lot of doctrine in it. Um, and as I said, there's a reading plan alongside, which I would encourage you to do. It helps consolidate what you're hearing on a Sunday, and it will help kind of fill in all those gaps. Because if we try and teach every verse on a Sunday, it will take forever, and it will feel really, really, really heady. So, so do dive into that if you can. Um, he's writing the, this book to the believers in Rome, which is why it's called Romans. He's a citizen of Rome, so he has this affinity with, with that congregation. And he's writing to them from Corinth, the book of Corinthians, you know, from, from Corinth. And this is before he travels to Jerusalem. His plan is he's going to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome and see this group and then on to Spain. What actually happens is he gets put in prison in Jerusalem. He actually ends up going to Rome as a prisoner. So things kind of don't pan out the way that Paul was planning. Um, and it's actually thought that this, um, this woman, Phoebe, who's a member of the church in Corinth, probably took the letter to Rome. So another sort of unsung hero of faith that we never really hear about. But that's the kind of thought. And the entire theme of, of the letter to the Romans is an idea of righteousness. So, so why do we need it? How do we get it? And then how do we respond once we have it, once we've been made righteous? Like, what is that progression and what is point? And that's basically what he's talking about all the way through the, the 16 or so chapters. It's written to tell us more about who God is and what God has done. And the, the passage I wanted to read is actually kind of like where we're going to finish this morning, but I think it's a helpful place to have in our, in our minds. And it's uh, Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. But now... God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ and this is true for everyone who believes no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous he did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and included them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and when he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you that we get to explore more of that gift of Jesus, that gift where you make us right. I pray that you open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word this morning. Help us to understand your great love um, and help us to, to lean in and become more like you and more like your children this morning. Amen. So this morning I want to look at a little bit about how God is a, a loving God, but also a just God. Now they're probably not new concepts necessarily, but I want to explore them a little bit differently, or a little bit deeper maybe. Um, as a parent, you hear the phrase, that's not fair, it's not fair, you're not being fair, like kind of a lot, that's kind of a common thing to hear. Usually said in the moment where a child is about to hurt themselves or someone else, there's some, something bad is about to happen. And you've prevented that from happening, and it's not fair, because you've, you've halted their will in some way. 
works is really from a popularity point of view as a parent, it's a lose-lose situation because as a parent, you've got to keep love and justice together somehow in balance, however imperfectly you manage to do it. And you can't have one without the other because love without justice is at best careless, really. And justice without love can be very, very painful. So you have to have that love and justice together, neither one being necessarily more important than the other, but working in partnership, in balance. It's like an employer that would never assess performance development or a teacher that never graded work. In those situations, you'll end up with a a lack of motivation, for want of a better phrase, a kind of a what's the point attitude. It doesn't show love, it doesn't show care if you're not grading that work, if you're not showing how we can be better, if you're not, if there's no kind of consequence, it doesn't make sense. Love should hold us accountable. In 1 John, verse five, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. And then later on in chapter, earlier in chapter four, sorry, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is fully love. He can only operate out of love, and his actions show that he is loving. We can see that. Everything he does is for our good, but he's also just. He is love, and he is justice together, and that is key to understanding um, who God is and how we should relate to him, which is the first point I want to land on today, is how, do, how does God relate to us before we put our faith in Jesus? So the beginning of that kind of journey, as it were. So chapters one through three in Romans is kind of where we're at this morning as we begin this this journey over the next two months. It can be summed up pretty well actually in verse 18 of chapter one. God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's the NLT translation. The NIV says the wrath of God is being revealed, which sounds more sort of powerful and poetic. The wrath of God. It's echoed again in Ephesians. All of, you, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. You see, God is, is justly angry with us, and there's no exceptions. We're all included in that. We all have some awareness, some knowledge of God's truth, and we suppress it, we ignore it, so that we continue to lead our lives, to live our lives, however we wish, with us in charge, without a, a, a kind of an idea of, of an overarching power. And as a Christ follower, when I sin, I'm actively doing or making a choice that God would not want me to do, or maybe not doing something that God would want me to do, maybe, you know, whichever way that goes. Really, a non-Christian, if I get an unbeliever, is kind of doing the same thing. According to Romans, we all have an idea of who God is. He's revealed himself through creation. So the wrath of God is that he's rightly angry at us for treating him with disregard and with contempt. And I think it's different from our feelings, our emotion of anger. It's different to that picture that comes to mind if I were to say, picture someone with anger issues. That's different. That's a different idea. Because this, this, this wrath of God is not, it's not a reaction to his wounded pride. It's not something connected to, to feelings of, of like revenge that maybe we have. This is very, very different. It's a valid reaction of justice to sin. And the good news is that Jesus offers to rescue us because without his rescue, God is justly angry with us. That's what we're left with. And Paul reiterates his point in chapter three, verse 20. And he addresses basically all the exceptions that we might come up with. 
that excuses from this justice is that therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we've just become conscious of our sin. A few years ago, um, at a previous church, I had hired someone onto, I was the, the children's pastor and director and stuff, and I'd hired someone on my team, um, let's call her Jane. Um, I hired her out of her internship and onto the team, um, and she, it was her first real job, um, which brings its own challenges, um, and she worked with me for a few years. As the leadership changed in the church, so kind of above me, she saw this opportunity to, I don't know, further her career perhaps, or change her opportunities. I don't really know what the end goal was and what she was trying to do, but she saw there was like a, a, an avenue ahead. And so what she did was tell the new, the, new, the new leadership team that Phil doesn't have a plan for children's ministry. There is no strategy. There is nothing in place, um, and that's a problem. And then she should, I don't know, whatever what she wanted to do. And that wasn't just her perspective, so let me, let me clear. It wasn't that she just misunderstood or I had a plan that I hadn't revealed. She was part of the plan that we had created. She was in meetings where we brainstormed this plan. We were actually about to kind of do this new approach to teaching and learning and discipleship in children's ministry. We were right on the edge of this new and exciting thing. And this kind of was happening behind, behind, the, behind the scenes. She leveraged this situation basically where, where new, leadership, new leadership were looking for loyalty, as new leadership does. They're trying to see the lay of the land. They were looking for loyalty. They're looking for where they could trust, who, was, who were the ones. And she saw a way of getting an in by putting someone else down. And she got into that, that circle. Now, I had a right to be, let's say, upset about that, angry about that maybe, uh, forgiving Jane um, was challenging because forgiveness, especially in this kind of situation, it takes real intentionality and prayer and dependence on, on Jesus' strength and the Holy Spirit. It takes effort. It is an action. It's a tangible task, which I think we sometimes forget. It's something that has to be done, not simply something you can allow to happen, like digesting a heavy meal. But the relationship was broken between Jane and I. She had offended me. There was hurt and injustice, and I was rightfully angry about that. Now, imagine your own life. If there's someone that said something maybe just callous or rude or, or maybe something bigger where, where they put, them, put you down to further themselves, like in this situation, or maybe, I know, we're in New York, so maybe someone was on the subway merely existing in your personal space and it was offensive. But whatever they did, you're the one who's offended. So what happens next is actually up to you. Because in my situation, Jane could have been apologetic and repentant. Actually, she was apologetic and repentant. She could send gifts or tokens of apologies. Yeah, she could make, attempt to make amends, but the ball's still in my court. I could give in to that anger. I can maintain that break of relationship or do something different and offer forgiveness and reconciliation. That person, Jane in this case, might want to be forgiven. Great. But ultimately, it's still my decision. It's still your decision. Do you care about getting even about what, is wrong, what, what, was, wrong, what was wrong was done and, and the lack of justice that was shown? Or, or do you want to seek restoration? Do you want to seek reconciliation? Do you want to seek forgiveness? So you have to make a choice. And that choice isn't always easy, but it is there. So what has God done to restore our relationship? We've seen that our actions have offended God. He is justly angry with us, so we have that break in relationship. 
Something has happened that has offended him. There is a break in that relationship. And if we understand that God has this, this rightful wrath, he's justly angry, then the next sort of natural question, the next kind of place we go to is, well, will he choose to forgive? What will he do? Will he choose to keep that broken? Or will he choose to reconcile? Will he choose to forgive? God is the offended party, so it's his choice. The ball's in his court. Now, other religions answer this in various ways. They'll say, well, God will restore, he'll forgive if you're sorry enough. Or God will forgive if you you do enough. Or if you try hard enough. Or if you perform a certain ritual of some kind. If you do, do something, make some action. And the problem with those approaches is that they are really the opposite of the message of the gospel. Um, They are solutions to influence God, basically by tokens of an apology, the the, the moral equivalent of of sending a box of chocolates to God. You know, that's, that's kind of what they're trying to do. And the gospel message is that we can do nothing to persuade God. The ball is in his court. It's up to him. Through the death of his son, Jesus, his wrath is not unleashed upon us. And instead, he has chosen to forgive us. He's chosen to reunite. He's chosen to restore. He's chosen to reconcile. He's chosen to forgive. He's the offended party. He has to make the next move. And he chooses grace and he chooses atonement. He forgives because he loves. Simply forgetting our sins, simply just, just, just pretending it never happened would be contrary to his nature because of that justice. Because he loves, he can't just say, well, it doesn't matter. Because it does matter. So the question isn't, does it not matter? Does does it matter? No, it matters. It's just, will he forgive? And the answer is yes. Uh, Towards the end of Romans 3, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. This is what we read earlier. This is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. And he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. And this sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. In the Old Testament, God had set up these visual aids to show people before Jesus how this problem of judgment would be dealt with. So it's on the day called a, a day of atonement, which is in Leviticus 16, if, if you want to check it out. But the idea was two live goats are brought to the temple. And the person in charge would, would lay his hand on the, on the head of the first goat as if to say, this is, this is, our, this is our stand-in, this is our substitute, and then it would be sacrificed, killed. The blood's taken to the temple as a sign that the penalty of death has been paid. Kind of like, here's the payment, it's done. Then they take their hands, they put it on the second goat. And and they confess over it the sins of everyone. And the goat is taken out into the desert, into the wilderness, and kind of just never seen again. And this is called the scapegoat. And that visual aid is to teach two things. The first is that the substitute can stand in for sinners and take the punishment they deserve. And the second is what we see what happens with our, with our sins when we are forgiven. They're completely removed, never to be seen again. It happened, but they are removed from us. You don't have to worry about them again. There's not like this record that, that maybe we keep as humans. But they're just visual aids. An animal cannot really take the place of a human. A goat is not as important as a human. I think that's fair to say. So the only substitute qualified to help us would have to be a human with no sins of his own he'd have to pay for, which is why God's son became man, lived that perfect life, and died on the cross in our place.
Romans 3.25, for God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. The Old Testament sacrifices are just visual aids of what Jesus would do one day. In Old Testament times, this issue of judgment was kind of left hanging in midair, and then Jesus came as a, as, a, as a sinless substitute and took that responsibility and that punishment of our sins and the sins of the whole world upon himself. God's justice was still let out, but also kind of kept in between himself and his son in a way that we probably can't ever fully understand. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. The cross is a perfect picture of love and justice held together. It doesn't say your actions against God don't matter. It actually says they do. It shows that they deserve punishment and the wrath of God. It shows that. But that punishment is taken from us, taken from you, taken from me, and placed on the cross. The justice has been done. Great love, great love has been shown. You can't help but look at the cross and see love. The content in the book of Romans, honestly, is so rich, it's really hard to to pare down what to pull from for a message. Um, And later in chapter five, so I'm jumping ahead, so that was my apology for why I'm jumping ahead. Um, It says this, um, because Paul just explains love so well. He says, uh, when we were utterly, utterly helpless, Christ came just at the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Knowing us at our very worst, anticipating every sin we have ever committed or will ever commit, Jesus still died for us, voluntarily submitting to the accusation and punishment of sin that he'd never committed, our sins. And that's the measure of God's love. So does God love me? Does God still love me maybe after such and such, this and that? Well, don't listen to what your feelings say, but look to the cross and see what the cross says. The answer is yes. So how does God relate to us after we put our faith in him? The forgiveness that Jesus achieved and offers on the cross is like a gift. It's, it's, a, it's like a present that has to be received. It's been paid for, but it needs to be received, accepted, opened, and enjoyed. Like pretty much any present, really. You don't receive it automatically. You can't inherit it just because it happened. And that's what faith is. Faith is the receiving part. It's saying to God, I trust what Jesus did on the cross I trust that he took my punishment for for my sins, that I can be forgiven. I trust in that without having to do anything more. And I trust that it has been done. Again, for God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. It is about accepting that gift of grace offered by Jesus on the cross and abandoning all the useless ideas that we come up with that might help us get on better terms with God. We all do it. Sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it. The reading the Bible, the praying, the the worshiping even, the better living than someone else are all good things in helping us know who God is, know what his plan for our life, increasing and enriching that relationship with him. But they can't do the work that Jesus has done. People are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. We're counted as righteous through faith. Not works, not by what we can do, by what he has done. 
One of our favorite places to go as a family um, is down to Governor's Island. Um, so we have three young kids, so we are always, if we go into Governor's, we're racing down there because we've left it too long to get to the ferry, and we don't want to get there and have to wait 45 minutes for the next one, so we're trying to you know, do the, the, whatever it is, the mile walk in 15 minutes. <laughs> we have strollers and scooters, and we're you know, heading down there as fast as we can. But it's a place we like to go to because it's open, and if you're out of the city, and, and you can see the sky, and you can hear birds and mostly helicopters, but you can see the city, and you feel like there's space. And, and the kids' school do hangouts down there because there's this just space, and it feels open and, and kind of a bit freer. And one of the things we love about it, and our kids love about it, is there's a ferry. And it's great because it's a cheap ferry, it's a short ferry, but it's still a ferry, so we go on a boat, and that's exciting. And it's kind of fun. So if I were to invite you to come with us to Governor's Island, which you're very welcome to, if I paid for your inexpensive ferry ticket as a gift, and you arrived at that terminal, and you, you knew you had this gift of a ferry ticket, but you bought your own, that makes no sense. Because an extra ticket doesn't get you on the boat even more. You're either on it or you're not on it. You either have a ticket or you don't. You can't be more on the boat. There's only one ticket. There's only one way in. There's, there's, just, there's one way to pay your way onto that boat. Another ticket, working to retrieve another ticket, is just meaningless. It's just a waste of time. It's a waste of, of, of energy and resources. Jesus has brought me fully into God's love. My activity, what I do to earn that, is useless. Nothing I do can get me more in. So why can't we just accept that gift of forgiveness? Why is that so hard? And just, and just enjoy the Christian life and what it offers. We really need to understand and believe that, that verse in Romans 4. People are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. Counted as righteous or made right, it says a couple other times in, in Romans 3. And in Back to Romans 8, it says, summarized very easily, now there's no condemnation for those who belong in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. It is done. It is done. I say, begin to wrap up. Um, it's in chapter 8, verse 15. You've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves, though. It's just worth remembering as we wrap up this idea of we've received all we need. But instead, you've received God's spirit when he adopted you his own children. And now we call him Abba, Father. So, as we kind of close, I want you to remember, we put our faith in Jesus. God still wants, to think us, wants us to think more than just, the God is my judge and I've been kind of let off, I'm not in trouble anymore. He wants us to see God as, as our father. And we are adopted children, not just tolerated by someone who finds me a constant disappointment, loved by a father who will never stop being my father. He'll never give up being my father or discredit me out of the family for, for bad behavior. We're imperfect sons, we're imperfect daughters, and we will always be this side of heaven. But there, there's, there's not to be fear that his love or his forgiveness will run out because of the cross. And that's where the parallel between God's forgiveness and grace and our, and our human approach to forgiveness and grace when we're, when we're offended kind of comes to an end, really. With, with Jane, um, I forgave her. Shay and I took her out for coffee and we, we talked it through. And we said, hey, we don't want to you know, rake over the coals. We want to offer forgiveness and move forward. We didn't ask for excuses or reasons. I don't know if this is the, the way to go about reconciliation and forgiveness, but this is what we did. Um, and it was really hard 
to, to really not want to know exactly what had happened. Not, I don't want to hear why or whether it was made sense in your head. It's just, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. At the end of the day, it was our choice. It's, let's just let's repair what we can repair. And it was really freeing. Now, Jane had become part of our family over the years. She, she would offer to, to watch our kids, and, and she refused to let us pay her for it. And so when she'd travel, we would like Venmo her that, you know, dinner or something to go, yeah, we want to be, be a blessing and stuff. So this was especially painful. So when we forgave her, we saw that reconciliation with her. And, and, and when we did, she said something along the lines, I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but something like, oh, oh, now we've had this conversation. That's great. I can help you guys with your move as we were preparing to leave Washington. And this is where things differ. Because, and I just want to put this there in case um, this, this is misunderstood. As imperfect humans, reconciliation might not mean restoration to how it was before in that relationship. You can forgive, but still create some boundaries because we know that the other person is still imperfect. God doesn't do that. God doesn't need to. Now, as it happened, then we moved. So whether those boundaries would have changed over time, I don't know. But I don't want you to leave thinking that that's the answer, that we must reconcile and restore because sometimes the way people are, boundaries are helpful, boundaries are helpful, boundaries are healthy. But with Jesus, he doesn't offer that. He doesn't need that. He offers full restoration as an inherited son or daughter, a reconciliation that restores us to inherit his kingdom. It's like the parable of the son who, who squanders, the lost son, I think it's called um, often, and he squanders the dad's money, and then he comes back um, in full repentance. He has nothing. He's penniless. And the, and the father runs to meet him, places a ring on his finger, celebrates. The position is restored in the household. And God's grace in the face of rightful wrath, rightful anger, really is astounding. So what do we do about this? Well, we need to understand the cross. Whether you are looking at faith, looking at Christianity, or whether you're already a believer, we need to read about it. We need to talk about it. We never need to assume we have the cross figured out because it is an unbelievable act of grace, an undeserved grace at that. So we need to trust in what the cross achieved. And God wants us to be assured, and that will happen as we trust the cross rather than our own feelings or someone else's feelings, someone else's opinion, look to the cross. And so I think we need to spend time regular time, pondering, meditating upon the cross. So if you think about it, how many, how many days, weeks do you go with, even as you read the Bible frequently, regularly, how many times do you go without sitting down for even five minutes to remind yourselves of what Jesus had done of the cross? Remember, earning God's love is futile because forgiveness has been given in full. So we should gain confidence in that. We no longer fear God's wrath. So if we really believe that, if we believe that we're unconditionally accepted, what happens for our, in our motivation to, to live like Christ? Can we become complacent? Can I just sin because I know I've been forgiven because I have the, the ticket for the boat already? Well, Romans 6 answers that straight off. Should we keep on sinning so God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? We died, 
were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. So if you're a believer, if you're a Christ follower, go trust these things that are true of you. Believe that nothing you do this week, good or bad, can make God love you more or less. And just, just see what effect it has if you really live in the belief of that promise. See how it changes the way you think and the choices you make, the way you interact, the way you speak to others. See if it changes the way you see others, the way you see the world around you. See the, your place in the world, how you interact with uh, injustice as, as it is done to you. The Bible doesn't share your worries because being loved by God, not living in fear of him, is the greatest motivator in the world to living for him. Now, if you, if you were to read Romans and look at the story of the cross, if, if your takeaway is you can go out and just sin because God will forgive me anyway, it's a pretty sure sign you've not yet embraced that incredible act of forgiveness that Jesus offers. Will you pray with me? Father, we, we are humble as we come before you in gratitude for your incredible gift of undeserved grace and forgiveness. Your choice to reconcile and also restore is astounding. Father, we, we pray that you continue to work in us to respond to that gift of forgiveness in a way that honors you and that draws others close to you. Father, we, we fail you often, yet you love us still. And we can only turn in gratitude and praise for who you are and what you've done. Amen.